Hello and welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group, and I'm really happy to be able to share with you another another great interview. So in today's episode, I speak with Sally Foley-Lewis, who is the author of a book called The Productive Leader. And I think this could be useful for the listeners for a few reasons. And one of the main ones is it really takes the time to work out what is actually getting in your way of being a productive and efficient leader. And during the interview, Sally very much shares her perspective on how to do that. So it's not just a theory book. There's some very, very practical applications in the book. And I think you, you'll get a lot out of it. So uh, happy listening. Would love to hear what you think. So head on over to uh, iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. And we'll see you next week. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Welcome, Sally, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a little bit of a sense of who you are. Who is Sally Foley-Lewis? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Julian. And who am I? Well, I'm someone who has been a CEO of a youth organisation and when I was in the organisation and trajectory for that role, I thought, when I become a leader, you know, I'm going to be everything. I'm going to be top dog. And then when I got there, it was not what I thought it was going to be. And so um, I have a few bruises from that experience, but they have been worth getting because of the lessons that come with it. And I'm absolutely obsessed with people finding productivity in their day. So, so making the most of their day, making the most of what they're on this planet to do through a leadership lens. So I blend productivity and leadership together. And I think some of my experiences over the years have helped me come to that point where I see people who really want to get something done, really want to achieve something, and they're struggling. And it's usually around a self-leadership or a team leadership sort of situation. So that's that's why I am what I am, where I am today. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. And so why did you decide to write this book, The Productive Leader? Because um, to me, I can see a direct line from what people are doing and the way they do their work, which is driven by why they do their work, um, and the outcomes they get from a productivity lens. Now, I don't like the term time management because it infers that we can actually do some weird, quirky manipulation to all the clocks in the world when we can't. Uh, time just keeps on moving. So it's about managing ourselves, managing our attention and our focus and our presence and the way we do our work in the time we have. And that then leads to, and while I know most organisations and businesses are, are about making money, I think the link from what it is you do to being more productive means better profits or better outcomes depending on what it is you're, you're ultimately looking for. So that's why I, I put the productive leader together because I can see that distinct link between behaviour and outcome. Okay. And just following on from that, have you got a really clear definition of productivity that, that, that you can give to the listeners? 
To me, productivity is about being the most efficient that you can be in the time you have. So it's a return on your investment of focus, energy and effort, which is to me the same thing, for, uh, for what you've got. It's not about time. It's within the time you have. So it's, and it's efficiency. Okay. Well, what I'd like to do is actually run through some of the key highlights that, that I've taken away uh, from the book. Yeah. The first one was on uh, this idea about the keys of productivity. So these is where you've got um, personal productivity, professional productivity, and people productivity. Yes. Keen yeah. to explore those. Okay. Well, to me, personal productivity is what you do to you that gets in the way of or helps your productivity. And so uh, some of the stuff I talk about around your own personal productivity is what are your habits and your time wasters? And I'm, when I talk about time wasters, most people go, oh, yeah, I'm so sick of everyone ringing me. That's not a personal productivity thing. That's actually an environmental productivity thing. Uh, but what I'm talking about is when you know you're wasting time surfing the net or what are the things that you procrastinate on and why? Understanding your product, your procrastination triggers is really important for then being able to devise the strategy to minimise your, your procrastination. So personal productivity is everything you do to yourself that hinders how you get your work done. And I actually have, and it's in my little um, travel bag at the moment because I, I used it yesterday as a speaking gig, but I actually have an oxygen mask. And I bought my own oxygen mask because this, is, this comes into personal productivity. I need to fill my own tank up first so that I can be the best I can possibly be for the people that I work with. And I think we all need to be reminded of that. If, if, if anyone has never been on a plane, what you're missing out on is the air crew, the, the cabin crew do a safety announcement. Obviously, the oxygen mask will, will drop down in front of you. And they tell you, put your oxygen mask on first. And so why is that? Well, one reason might be so that you can then determine who you want to actually save after that, um, who you like more. <laughs> but, but so you don't become a burden on others. And I think that's the most important message that underpins your personal productivity. So what is it you're doing to yourself? So that's, that's the first one. Then, and I often start with personal productivity because then you can see it flowing on. And then the underpinning of that is your professional productivity. So it's the way in which you do your work. And if you're a leader and a manager, then how are you running your meetings? Uh, how are you showing up at work that, as a role model for others that then will infect or affect the way in which people also show up? I had one client who would show up at 5 o'clock in the morning and not leave until about 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And she didn't realise that all her staff thought they also had to do those sort of hours. And until it was made clear to her, she's like, oh, no, 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 everyone, go home, go home. I'm choosing to do this for me. However, she didn't, she still needed to be coached into her own, you know, productivity because why are you at work for those hours? But her professional productivity highlighted those sorts of things and the way in which she does her work. Another thing around professional productivity also is emails and your workspace and how you flow work through what you need to do and how the work flows through for, the, for your team. So that's where I look at professional productivity. And then the third one is your people productivity. And this is actually 
how you engage your team to be the best they can be. And while, while people look at it and go, so that's, it's, you know, the team productivity. No, as a leader, how are you delegating? And how are you using delegation as a development tool? How do you give feedback in such a way that it actually creates the change you want? Or the other one is, do you give presentations that are wholly and solely data-driven and, and don't engage and they're boring? And so where are the stories that show up and engage your team talking about the values and talking about values and action? And so that's just a tiny snippet of those three of personal, professional and people. And then there's intersections as well. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. So in, in the book on um, page 50, you talk about goals. Yes. And use a uh, method which I'm very familiar with. But I, I, I'm curious just to, to hear your spin on it, which is the old SMART methodology. Are you able to give that to the listeners? Yeah, I um, look, I, I kind of cringe a little bit with SMART goals because, uh, and the only reason why I cringe is because it's so old. It's like, isn't there something better and newer, shinier that we can use? And... Um, you know, I think SMART goals are, it's the structure of SMART is specific, measurable and um, achievable, uh, time bound. What am I missed? Realistic. And so, um, you know, that gives you a good structure for setting a goal. And one of the things I think is that underpins the success of a SMART goal is actually allowing the team to set them together, allowing your individuals to set them and, and challenging the thinking around goal setting. Um, you don't necessarily have to go, is it SMART? Is it this S-M-A-R-T? But you as the leader, if you know the SMART concept, then you can challenge your team by saying, okay, you want to you want to achieve this project well when do you want to achieve it by okay that's a big project let's break it down what's the first thing you want to do and that way you're helping them get specific so what actions have to fall out of that uh, how do you know when it's successful you know and and using smart in the back of your head as a template for a conversation actually allows you to engage deeper with your team. And you can use SMART in the design of work. It's not just about performance goals. It could be in how we design the way we do our work so that it's actually more engaging and it's more effective. So I think while SMART's old, it's still good and it works. And it sounds like you take a, a very much a, a coaching approach just smart in that it's about, you know, that, that working through with your team rather than just introducing a framework. It's about coaching them through it and drawing out that information. Yes. And I think one of the nuances with this is, and I usually draw this up on the, on a whiteboard or a flip chart. Most times we have a situation where we, we know what we have to achieve. That's almost out of our control. If we choose to work in that organization for that purpose, the goal is pretty obvious. And so what I say to, to the, the leaders and, the, and particularly middle managers who I love working with is that, you know, be honest about it. Okay, team, we know we've got to hit this. This, this we can't change necessarily. We can exceed it. Uh, we don't want to, you know, not, ex not achieve it, but this is what we're aiming for. And so that we can't negotiate. However, what we do and the way we get there that's what we have control over. So that's where you can plug in the smart component to get to that. And I think it's a little nuanced 
but it's a, a, around smart goals and setting smart goals. But I think it's where you can get your traction with your team. Fantastic. Mm. So there's a little bit of an excerpt that I'd like I'd like to read from your your book, and it's about something which I'm very passionate about. It comes from page 71, and it's all about expectations. Ah, oh, yeah. So clear expectations are about being explicit. You cannot assume others know or understand what you expect of them. Be as open and unambiguous as possible when stating the standards and outcomes expected. Furthermore, don't assume employees know that they can come to you with questions. They may leave your office with a task you've set them, thinking you've given them all the relevant information. But when they get started on the task, they find they have many questions. The employee is unsure whether they should speak up and ask, and they don't want to look stupid. Yep. <laughs> what are your yep. thoughts? <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? And I'm, it's interesting because when I did a bit of work with a, uh, one, of our, one of our iconic national companies, I was working with the middle manager there and then one guy said, I'm so sick of people asking me questions. And then I'm so <laughs> sick of people doing the wrong thing. So he had, he had it from both sides. He had people coming to him who were choosing not to think for themselves because he always gave them the answer. And then on the other side of the coin, he would set someone a project and they'd just go off on their merry way. And they, it's, a, it's a balancing act. You know, you do want people to take the initiative, but you also don't want them to make mistakes or assumptions that are going to lead to costly mistakes. And so yeah. we had to unpack that. And I said to him, well, what are your expectations? And, and I said to him, uh, and we actually went through the last project that he actually gave to someone. I said, well, imagine I'm that person. What did you say to me? Pretend you're going to give me that. And so I actually just came back with a whole bunch of questions. And he's just like, oh, okay. And I said to him, look, I'm not doing that to pull you apart. I'm just giving it to you so you know that you need to make sure I get it. You need to know and be confident that your employees get it. And then you also need to say to them, look, in case something comes up, please come and ask me. I'm more than happy to make sure we are, we're on the right track. No one wants to make a mistake. And then on the flip side, with all these people that constantly just come to him and ask him questions, he says, you know, I said I had an open door policy, but sometimes I just want to slam it shut. <laughs> and, and, and I get that. And, then, and it was one of those moments where I had to say, I think you've created that by a very good intent, but what's happened is because you've said, yeah, come and ask me anything, they have. And there's, there's, there's elements of their jobs that they really should know the answer to. So the, the flip in that, and you're right about the coaching opportunity there, is instead of just giving the answer, what's a question you could ask that engages their brain to do the heavy lifting? So, yeah. 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 Mm. So... I want to keep exploring some some key things, and, and what, the next one that stood out for me was this idea from chapter three, uh, which was really about busy versus achievement. Yeah. Because quite often, I people say I'm flat out, I'm busy. I so said, "What are you actually doing?" I don't know, but I'm busy. Mm. Well, the most common thing now is to say, "Oh, it's just insane." <laughs> We're not busy yeah. anymore. We're insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think um, from the research that I've done, I find that um, we don't, we, we're lo we've lost achievement. Mm. We see achievement um, through, you know, our elite athletes, through our top performers, through our musicians and, and what social media, you know, turns back at us as to what we might think achievement is. Um, but we are, 
we're on the hamster wheel of busy and we haven't stopped and actually said, well, what is achievement? And that comes back to goal setting too. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned a bit earlier about habits and individual time wasters. Chapter four is the whole chapter is about that. Mm. Uh, so, so what are, what are the biggest uh, habits and individual time wasters that are you coming across which are impacting leaders' ability to, you know, achieve? I think when it comes to your people, it's almost the gossiping and the chatting and the misinformation that gets created because that infects the culture, which then infects performance. And, and you're a leadership expert, so you know that culture will eat strategy for breakfast, as the famous quote goes. Um, and so that, I think, is a really big one. But also it's the micro snippets into the day that actually add up. And it's the, the longer break. It's the, if I could redesign offices, none of them would be open office plans anymore. Um, you know, the, the meerkat office partitions, I'd take <laughs> them away because um, there's now research to say that they were probably the worst invention ever. Um, yeah. Some of it's okay, but we haven't provided enough space for every type of worker. And how do you do that? Well, you have a good mix where you have an open space and you have privacy and you have quiet spaces because we've got people who are desperately wanting to just get on with their work who are being interrupted by others. And I think one of the, one of the things when it comes to bad habits is in a, in a personal context is answering something immediately. You know, if an email pings, I instantly have to answer that because someone wants me. Someone wants to. Someone wants my attention. And isn't that a nice ego boost? And yes, it is. I will never take that away. Of course, it is. Someone sent me an email. How about that? But does that mean you actually have to read it now and action it now? And a lot of people kind of say, "But it's an email." Well, emails are never urgent. Mm. You know, do you send an email to Triple O saying I've fallen out of a tree and I think I've broken two arms and a leg and three ribs? Could you get here as soon as you can? Now, how do you know that email arrived? How do you know they understood it? How do you know um, anyone's coming for you? It, emails are never urgent. And I think our response to those things needs to be looked at. And that's a, that's a habit thing that, that has creeped in. And it is definitely a bit of a time waster for people because they stopped doing what they were doing to answer something that was probably less important than the work they were doing. Yeah. That's just one example at least. So, hmm. Yeah. And you, you, you spoke a little bit earlier too. You mentioned procrastination. And again, it's, it's great because you've, you've got a whole chapter on it, but you've also got these, which I really like, these seven procrastination triggers and how to overcome them. Mm. Yeah. So you're able to walk the listeners through the, the seven procrastination triggers? Yeah, definitely. I think feeling overwhelmed is a big one and one that we may not want to admit to to others. So that's where we can creep in and look busy. But really I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do and I don't know where to start. And, and, I, and if I'm a manager especially, I'm supposed to know because otherwise yeah. I wouldn't be the manager. And so, you know, all that just adds to more overwhelm. And I think things like um, saying to yourself, this seems like a lot of work and I'm not sure I can cope with it all is some of the things that might come up for you in that sort of way. So asking yourself, well, 
Have I had training on this? Who's done this before that might be able to help me? How much time do I think I really need to complete this task? And one of the things that um, asking, you know, uh, that's probably not in the book, but one of the questions you could ask yourself is, what would be the very first thing I need to start on? Instead of having the big task overwhelming you, what's the one thing? What's the one thing? So, yeah, so that's one of them. Um, afraid of success. Now, if I'm afraid of success, that means that if I actually do really well at this, what else are they going to expect of me? And if I do really well at this and then they expect me to do something else and I'm not good at that, then what's that going to look like for me? And so I think it's really important that um, you ask yourself, are you going to be punished with other tasks, you know, called rewards, uh, if, you, if you actually succeed in something? Um, do you want to be promoted? Some people don't want to be promoted. And then because they knock back a promotion, everyone thinks there's something wrong with them. And that's not true. But that's, that's, that's the mind game that goes on. You know, if, I, if I do really well at this, how are my mates going to treat me? And I think that's a very Australian thing. Ah, oh, yeah. yeah, you show off. That yeah. sort of stuff, I think, comes up. And some other tips in there. And the third, the third uh, procrastinator is that you might resent the responsibility. Well, why do I have to do it? You know, why am I being picked on? You know, surely someone else can be doing this. Um, and so it's asking, you know, is the, am I the right person? And not saying as to pass the buck, but really as objectively as you possibly can. Am I actually the right person to do this? And if you're in middle management and you've been given something and you resent that responsibility, then ask yourself, who in my team is showing promise where I could actually use this as a development opportunity? Now, get smart and leverage these things. Um, Another one, the fourth one, is the afraid of failure, which I think somewhere, somewhere in our lives, along the way, we've all had a fear of failure. And I think it's about uh, reframing that for ourselves and saying, well, have I had a significant amount of opportunity to learn? Um, if I fail, how do I fail quietly, fail fast and learn from it? Um, are there some factors in this whole task that actually are beyond my control? So if it doesn't work, what bit do I take responsibility for and what bit do I ask for now that actually is out of my control? So stepping back and having a bit of clarity around which bit might impact on me or not. And then unsure how to proceed. Now, people just might get stuck. You know, we have the fight, flight, and then we have the freeze uh, modes. So, you know, if we just don't know where to go or how to start something, then actually asking. And that's a tough one for us, but um, you don't have to ask loudly. Not everyone has to know that you have to ask, but ask quietly amongst your colleagues and your peers and your senior leadership. Look, have you done this before? What don't I know about this? Um, and... It might just be that you need to ask for more clarity on the expectation. Now, what really is the outcome you're after here? And that might be the nice inroad into a bigger conversation about how to proceed. So that's that one. Number six, afraid of conflict or confrontation. So if I do this task, who's going to get upset? Who's going to get annoyed? Who's going to sabotage, potentially? Um, and... Is that question real? Like, would that really happen, number one? And number two, what would be the impact of that? If I do this, do, am I prepared to lose workmates over this? Uh, and so, you know, you might feel as though you don't have a choice, but you do. 
but also if that comes up for you, what conversation do you need to have with your workmates before you do it? So they understand. And it's not about the relationship, it's about a task. So that's one of those things there as an example. And then the last one is about the pointless, boring task. <laughs> you know, I think um, uh, we've all been guilty of going, oh, no, I'll do that later. I'll do that. I'll do that. Yeah, I'll get to it. Because it's actually not important and not urgent to us in our frame mind. And so the classic example would be filing, you know, the old school filing. And it never gets done as quickly as it probably should. So how do I break that task down? You know, if I do five minutes of it now, if I, if I actually schedule five minutes of this boring task every day, then at least I'm, I'll, be, I'll be knocking it off eventually. Yeah. What reward do I get if I actually hammer this through and get it done in an hour? What will I reward myself with? You know, so there's just lots of different ways in which you can move around your, your procrastination triggers because we all have them and different things trigger them. So, yeah. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this idea from chapter seven, which is this whole, oh, whole idea about scheduling you. Yes. Are you able to share a bit more with the listeners about what you mean by that and, and how people can apply that in their day-to-day when when it's insane and they feel as though they're overwhelmed and busy and all of those things yeah i i think one of the things that happens for people is that they they feel a sense of um purpose and a sense of being liked accepted um worthiness and value all tied into serving others and being of value to others. Um, and while I think that's, that is, helps us get out of our own way sometimes, that we actually are operating in service of others or for a bigger cause, but my question around that is, when we show up to do that, are we, are we operating from an empty tank or a full tank? And how we, how we look after ourselves means how we can actually give. I think that the the measure of our own tank is the measure of the impact we give. And doing something for ourselves is not selfish, it's self-care. And I think men do this better than women, and I know that's a bit of a stereotype and it's not necessarily applied to all people in the same way. But the classic example is where, you know, mum does everything for everyone and she has the burnt chop syndrome, which means, you know, everyone has the best of everything. I'll just have the burnt chop. It's all right because you're all fine. And that's the classic sort of traditional example. And that's why, you know, I actually have an oxygen mask. You know, I, I bought myself an oxygen mask. I, you know, I, um, I couldn't believe how easy it was to buy, actually. Uh, but I have an oxygen mask that I take and I, pres- I use it in my presentations and in my workshops. But I also have it usually hanging beside my desk. Um, it's just in my travel bag at the moment. But it's there to remind me that if I want to be the best speaker, the best coach, the, the best mentor to my clients, then I need to walk in with a full tank. And so every single day I have something scheduled for myself. And some days it's five minutes and it might just be uh, sitting out on my patio, looking at the mountains and writing in my gratitude journal. Or it might be a whole day just for Sally. And um, I will go get a massage, go to yoga, um, hang out with girlfriends. um, And it's guilt-free. And the funny thing is that when you actually schedule that in, your loved ones go, well, good for you. 
as you should and support you in that. And I think that's an important thing. And I've noticed a lot of work uh, places also bringing in the mindfulness stuff and bringing in the self-care and the wellness and, and um, health programs, which is about time, um, but they're being more mindful of it. And the other thing around it is that it doesn't always have to take a lot of time. One of my favourite, favourite things to do is to listen to a seven-minute body scan, seven minutes is all, on the app called Smiling Mind. It just centres you, fills you up, and then you're ready to go again. Okay. So what was the name of the app? Smiling Mind? Smiling Mind. So it's two words, smiling, like as in a happy smile, and mind as in your head, brain, mind. Yeah. Um, and I look, there's plenty of fantastic mindfulness meditation type apps out there. Uh, I like Smiling Mind because they're Australian. Okay. Fantastic. So that's something for the listeners to get onto. Mm. So you, in, you, you talk about this idea of clearing your space for success. Yeah. So that you can, obviously, you know, that links back to a lot of what we've spoken about earlier with achievement and things like that. How do do people clear their space? I have two versions of this. Um, There's one which comes out of a coaching concept that when you're about to go into a meeting or you're about to sit down with one of your team members or you're about to do some really heavy thinking type work, then clear your your space up here. Clear, Clear your space in your head because that's about getting yourself ready to be present and getting yourself ready to be focused in on doing the work you've got to do. And Missy's just present in case someone's, in case the postman's coming. Um, <laughs> that's the barking in the background, I'm sorry. Uh, but being present means that you are fully engaged with, your, with the person you're speaking with, the team you're speaking with. And the flip to that is, what's it feel like when someone's not paying you any attention? You know, you don't, you don't feel valid, you don't feel worthwhile, you don't feel like you're important to them. So that's important. It's that being present piece. And clearing your space, also getting ready to do some work means getting rid of other distractions. Asking someone, just man the phones for half an hour so I can get this done. So that's one part of clearing the space. The other part of clearing the space is making sure that your workspace, the actual space that you, you come into every single day, actually gives you um, a level of energy and boosts you or you walk in and it's a, it, it looks like a, a bomb's hit it and it's like, oh, not this again. You know, yeah. That sets your day up. Now, some, there is a bit of research that says some creatives, not all, some creatives, when they look at a messy desk, they kind of go, yeah, there's this and there's that and they play and, you know, chung, 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 all the light bulbs go off, which allows for that creativity to happen. And that works for creatives, some creatives, not everyone, but it, that, that actually works for them. And there's nothing wrong with that unless you need to make sure that your space is, uh, has to be tidy because it's a very visible space in a, in a, in a workplace or you know, customers and clients see it. Then, how, then it's about having that conversation about creating a creative space somewhere for you to go and have a nice lot of mess to play with or having a nice, clear, decluttered space that actually walks in and you think, look at that, I'm ready to go. And one of the things I have done with clients in the past is when we do it, we, when we do a decluttering to clean a space, I actually get them to take everything out, including desks and chairs and filing cabinets, and we get in and we get the walls cleaned 
and the carpets cleaned because there's actually a health and hygiene factor to that as well. And so only put back what you need. Broken equipment goes in the bin and gets written off or whatever asset register it needs to be sent to. Bits get repaired. Files go into archives. Uh, whatever you need at your desk that you use often enough has to be in arm's reach or in the drawers. Everything else, move it away. Get, don't, don't crowd yourself in with stuff that you actually feel. You're creating an overwhelm by having so much stuff yeah. around you. So that's the two different types of clearing your space. I really like the fact that you dedicate a whole chapter to time wasters. What do we do about time wasters? <laughs> um, the external ones, is that where you're coming from? Yeah. 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 Look, I think we've got a lot of different time wasters where we can sit there and we can either whinge about them or we can do something about them. <laughs> and, um, look, there's people, there's processes, there's technology, there's also the unknown that just crops up out of the blue and you know, we have to answer phone calls. We get people who just show up at our desk or our workplace. We've got technology failures. And does, not, does the world stop when the IT breaks down? It is, it, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall every time a, the computers crash at a workplace just to watch people. Um, and how we, we go into an absolute frenzy when the computers are down. So the thing with that is, what is it that you can do to minimise them? Because you can't predict the future. You don't know when necessarily everyone's going to make phone calls to call you. But how do you minimise the impact of it? And uh, the best example I'll give you is a client that I worked with. They have an open pod situation. And these four staff work together in a in a in a uh, quadrant type setup with a little round table in the middle. And what they decided to do was uh, have one person be interfe run interference. And so they chose bunny ears, a bunny ears uh, headband thing, okay? It's quite funny. But that's what they had in their office. So they said, all right, whoever's got the bunny ears on runs interference for a half an hour, an hour, whatever they decide. They all agree on that time frame. So that person answers everyone's phones. That person tends to any visitors. That person will probably go and make tea and coffee for everyone before it starts or towards the end of it. That person does everything in their power to let the other three get on with their work. And they share that around. And one of the best things that's come out of that is that other people understand that as well. So when people come from other departments to that little area, they go straight to the bunny ears and handle the issue. <laughs> and it's just, it's fantastic. And I think that says that as humans, when we have signposts or symbols, we're all right, we can work to it. And they also yeah. know that if the person with the bunny ears has got the, or if the bunny ears are on and they can actually see them poking up over a, over a, a cubicle, then they know that team's got something going on. And so I'll just go to bunny ears quietly. And it works. It's funny and it works. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to encourage all our listeners to go and get some bunny ears. Oh, think, uh, be more creative. Come up with something else. <laughs> something, something else? Yeah. In Chapter 10, you talk about some uh, research which supports, I suppose, my view on multitasking as well, that it's uh, not really effective. So uh, you share with, with the listeners what your perspective on multitasking is? 
Yeah, to me, and, and because we're obviously thinking the same way, very few people can multitask and those people are super taskers. But to me, multitasking is task switching. Yeah. And it's, and while it can be quite micro, there is time being consumed in the switching. And so the other thing is our level of thinking on one task, then switching it to the, to the next task and then switching it to another task and then switching it back to another task. We, we create fatigue. Um, and so we're actually increasing the chances of quality and errors to, you know, quality go down and errors to go up. And so there's, there's probably, I think I've read about 12 different studies on multitasking. Um, and my top seven favorite ones were that um, they did an experiment of uh, a clown on a unicycle going diagonally across a quadrangle in a university. And they went up to, the researchers went up to anyone who was walking through the quadrangle on their phone. So they're walking and on their phone. And they said, oh, you know, have you seen what's been going on in the quadrangle? No, what? And so they missed the clown. So, that, so you miss out on stuff when you're multitasking. Uh, mm. The other thing is that you, um, there's a thing called Ohio. So only handle it once. But if you're multitasking, then you're actually going to be handling that piece of work more than once. And that's a thing I think that people need to think about. The other thing which I think is really important is that we can gain weight. So if we're, if we're at our, our desk doing our work and we've got our coffee and we've got our stash of lollies in the drawer or in the jar, if, if that's not a measured out portion of food, then we will just go into the lolly jar like Pavlov's dog, straight back to those lollies without thinking about what we're doing. And it can actually cause weight gain. And the other thing with multitasking, it's another piece of research, is that when we multitask, we actually feel like we're busy. We feel like we're doing stuff. And that keeps our heart rate elevated, which causes a prolonged level of stress on our heart, which can then become not very good for us. And then I say, stop, where's the achievement? You know? <laughs> so there's a lot of research. There's stacks of research around multitasking. But, but let's keep it real. Um, let's, let's bring it back to the real world. When I say to people, don't multitask, I'm talking about when you need to do some high-level thinking, when you've got to do a report or you've got to handle performance management conversations or you're going into, into a proposal meeting or a sales meeting, don't be doing anything else. Be there for that. Yeah. Because I, hands down, 100% will always watch TV, drink a glass of wine while I'm doing my ironing. Yeah. <laughs> Those three things are not high level. Keep it real. That's what I say. So, yeah. Okay. So, to, so two more points I'd just like to explore. And the, the first one is this idea about four key professional productivity boosters. Mm -hmm. I'm, re I'm really keen to know what can we do to boost our productivity? The, the four that I talk about in the book, um, the first one is task batching. And so that's doing like tasks together. So if you need to do, say, some reconciliation for something and there's quite a few different things you need to do in the reconciliation work, then schedule that in and do all that at once because your brain's going to be on a roll. You're going to, you're going to be okay. Once you get the first one done, you can do more and do more and do more. And you'll, you can get through it quicker that way because you're actually not having to stop doing that, get your brain ready to do something different. If it's emailing, 
um, I encourage people to actually create an autoresponder that says, um, I, ch I answer my emails three times a day, this time, this time, and this time, because that's about improving my productivity. That's batching. So, you know, doing like tasks at the same time. Uh, the other one I talk about is chunking, and this is the one I really love because I actually wrote this book. It's a 40,000-word book, and I wrote it in two months. It took four months to get it out and printed and done, but I actually wrote the content in two purely by doing chunking. And chunking is when I chunk a piece of time and I get rid of every other distraction and I hit the timer on my phone and I just go. The key to success with the chunking is I have one single intention and one thing I want to achieve in that piece of time. Now, I had to train myself to increase the chunking time. Um, and I also have to admit that I didn't do it very well to start with when I very first learned about chunking because I thought, this will be easy. I set my timer for 90 minutes because I'm awesome at, at being, you know, focused for, for a whole 90 minutes. And... And then I sat down, I had all my email switched off, my phone was switched off, I had a cup of tea, I had a big glass of water, I had a bowl of trail mix sitting there as well because I figured, you know, I'll get all through all this. Within about five minutes, I was just digging around in that bowl looking for the cashews. Like, you know, learn and get some more insight about yourself and the things that distract you. And yeah. so now when I chunk, you know, I work myself up to 90-minute chunk times and I have water and that's it. Um, and the other thing that I thought was a really interesting lesson that came out of this, the very first time I chunked for about 30 minutes or so, I had my phone off and I, you know, my phone's off, we'll, the world will stop if, if my phone is off and no one can get me and, you know, ego, ego, ego getting in the way. But when I turned my phone on, guess how many calls I missed? None. <laughs> The world still turned without me. So get over yourself is the other thing I, I learned out of that as well. And you can always return a call, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's two. That's the batching and the chunking. The other two are the meetings in your emails. And I already talked a little bit about emails. Um, I often play with different things in my email. And currently my email has a header that says, if you've received this email out of your normal working hours, do not feel compelled to answer it immediately. An email is never urgent. So yeah. I'm, ex I'm actually creating an expectation for people to not have to just respond straight away because it's an email. Um, and I change it up every now and again to see what re reactions I get. But you can answer your emails at certain times. But when you set up your email, say you want to do a little bit of batching and you want to only answer your emails three times a day, then you need to also manage expectations. So people are going to want, if, if, if for the last three years you've answered everyone's emails instantly, you've created an expectation. So it might mean you need to just incrementally increase the time in which you reply. It's that frog in the water thing, the toad in the water, you know, slowly bring it to the boil um, so it doesn't know. It's a bit cruel, but you know what I'm getting at there. Um, yeah, so you need to manage expectations and let people know I'm trying to improve my productivity, therefore this is what I will be doing. If it's urgent, come and see me. If it's urgent, ring me. That's what you can say to people. And the meetings is the other one. Um, and it's about making sure, again, expectations are clear. Have an agenda. Tell people you're going to stick to it. And calendars are set to defaults. 
So they usually, they well, mine sets to an hour and I often change it to whatever's needed. But if you're setting, se sending out a meeting request, stir the pot a little bit and actually create a, a meeting that goes from 9 a.m. to 9.33 and actually see what people do. But stick to it. Respect time. Don't be late either and don't start, don't wait for others to arrive to start the meeting. I know it feels like it's rude and it's annoying because the people you want in the room aren't there, but start it anyway. And if they feel like they've missed out, then it's their responsibility to come to you to find out. And, I, and that'll only happen a couple of times before people get the hint. The other thing is if you get a meeting request and there's no agenda, you can ask for one. It's simply just saying, can I have an agenda, please? Because I'd like to be prepared. Um, I want to know what to expect and I also want to know what to bring because I don't want to waste people's time. Mm. Um, now, I heard recently, and I wish I could remember where I heard it from. Um, uh, I, yeah, I just can't remember who exactly who, but I thought this was really cool. And I do admit you've got to be pretty confident to do this. But when a meeting was called, and he would come into the meeting room and he would say, look, I know you set an hour for this meeting, but something's come up. I've only got 20 minutes. Can we get right into it? And he doesn't right. sit down until he's said that. And then everyone just, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, let's get into it. And I know that kind of reduces the social element and it could feel like you're just being cold and businesslike only. You could have a little, still have a little bit of social, but boy, it pushes it down and you get on with it. And I thought that was really cool. Oh, so, yeah. great. So, so batching, chunking, emails and meetings, they're four areas that could really help boost productivity. The final bit from the book is, is something which all the leaders I've come in contact with during my time often have trouble doing, and that's delegating. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they all say, uh, we see the value, but how do we do it? How do we do it effectively? Yeah, and I think there are two things around this and um, that hinder the success of delegation. And one is understanding the concept of slow is fast. Um, and what I mean by that is if I stop and give myself time to think about the task, the person, the resources, the communication, the expectations, and plan that out, and set it up and have an absolutely thorough as possible conversation with the person I'm delegating to. And again, back to expectations like we said at the top of your show was being sure that you are explicit about now if you have questions, come and ask me. But if you do that slowly in the beginning, then the task gets done faster with less errors and less backwards and forwards. And... Um, just doing the task yourself, I, I totally get, it's just easier if I do it myself. Yes, that is true. That is 100% true and it is an absolute short-term win and a long-term loss. So making sure your mindset is clear about that. So that's one with the slow is fast. The other thing is, is looking at delegation as an opportunity for development. It is a free on-the-job tool that you can use and it does you and me out of, out of work, so <laughs> we're not developing people. But, but why not? If you've got something that you can see an opportunity to develop someone that you think, they'll be really good at that and it's someone who I've got in mind who can act up in my position when I'm on leave or if I ever move on and up the organisation, that's the person I would recommend. That's where you start using them for succession planning. 
Now, de delegation is just, to me, it is so underutilized. And because also the other thing is, if you've got a staff member who you've taught how to do something, so now you can delegate to them successfully, then you've got to get to them and say, so who would you like to train to do this? It has a knock-on effect. Um, I, know, I just think it's, it's, when you get past the roadblocks and actually have a structure, and I think that's probably underpins all of this, is get your structure right. There is a, there's like a template you can use to do that. Well, so if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? I'm, I'm easy to find when you put my name in Google, Sally Foley Lewis, uh, because there's only one of me and thank goodness there's most people. And so uh, please connect with me on LinkedIn, jump on the website. Uh, let's have a chat. So sallyfoleylewis.com. And any last words on, on leadership and, and why productivity is such a key to successful leadership? I think that when we are focusing on the way in which we do things and the way in which we are helping or hindering the way our team does things, then we are setting ourselves up to be better thinkers and then better doers. Uh, the more aware we are, the better off we'll be. And one of, the, one of the quotes that was told to me when I was a young person on a leadership youth camp many, many, many years ago, and it still sits in my heart and my head today, is that a leader is someone who has a compass in their head and a magnet in their heart. And I put that quote in the book because one of the things I think that resonates for me is that the compass in the head is they're working out where they're going. They know where they want to go, or at least the compass is there to help them get there. So there's a couple of different ways you can interpret that. And the magnet in the heart is that they can draw people to them to then move forward and, and move on their, their quest as such. All right, well, Sally, thank you so much for being part of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate it. Julian, thank you so much. All the best to you. And um, thank you. Thank you, Synergen, and thank you, Julian. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergengroup.com.au. See you next time.